Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds. I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in ketosis. Right. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Negative. We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we share studies that we've found in the show notes. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook and we mm -hmm. love to eat. In mm -hmm. every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot, will not, and... Shall not. Be ignored. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start podcast number 115. Dr. Jason Fung unpacks the diabetes code. Could you save your due for a little? So, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? Yeah, last week's show was John Wright measuring metabolic health. Um, yep. There wasn't anything specifically in that show other than somebody made a comment that my verbal nodding, you know, where I go, uh-huh, yep, right. Yeah. In the, They found yep. that annoying. Yeah. And I listened to the show yep. again. and <laughs> Yeah, just like that. Uh, yeah. I listened to the show again myself, and yeah, I hear it. So, uh, mea culpa, my fault. I'll try to dial that back with my, my next interview. All right, so let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. Ketogenic diet is any diet that puts you in a state of nutritional ketosis mm -hmm. where you're primarily burning fat for your energy. Yeah. And the easiest way to do that is to limit your carbohydrate intake to less than 20 grams of carbs per day and get your carbs from green leafy vegetables and maybe a little heavy cream or maybe some cheese or some nuts. Yeah, carbs are sugar and starch. Absolutely. Replace all that sugar and starch in your diet with healthy fat. Mm. And fat is what we use for energy. As for protein... We use that to build our bodies, not for energy. Right. And so if you stay within the range of one to one and a half grams of protein for mm -hmm. every kilogram of lean body mass you have, you'll be doing okay. Yeah. All our energy we get from fat. fat. <laughs> the fat on your body or the fat on your plate. Right. So that's a ketogenic diet. Yeah. So, Carl, how was your week? It was pretty good. I did another Carl's Keto Kitchen video nice. live stream on mm -hmm. Thursday. I perfected the recipe for buffalo chicken meatballs, and uh, I'm going to talk about that today. Instead of using pork rinds as a filler, I used konjac root powder. Oh, interesting. Yeah, made for a more dense meatball. Well, I plan to do these cooking shows regularly, hopefully every Thursday. That seems to be a good time. And mm -hmm. you can see them on our YouTube channel at youtube.2keto.com. In fact, if you subscribe to us on Twitter, on mm -hmm. Facebook, on YouTube, or even on Twitch, and we're always Two Keto Dudes, yeah, you'll be notified when I do these Carl's Keto Kitchen videos. Right now, they're scheduled to be 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday nights. 
Nice. Uh, also, I'm on <laughs> day two of a fast. Another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm feeling a little bloated from too many chicken meatballs lately, I guess. <laughs> and I forgot how good fasting makes me feel. It just yeah. makes me feel so good. Yeah. yeah so I I'm did, just going with it. Yeah, I fasted uh, last week uh, for my midterm exams, 100 hours for my last exam. And That's great. Yeah, one of the reasons I did that is because you know you have your mental clarity, you have focus, and and that's mm-hmm. an advantage. But uh, one of the main reasons I did it was because <laughs> my nutritional lecturer said that human beings need 130 grams of uh, glucose every day in their diet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was basically a screw you to him. But you know, um, <laughs> so for my week, I actually got some results back from my midterms, and I got oh. a solid solid result in my chemistry, which would and that was the one I was worried about. So yeah. um, bio. Uh, I did two bio subjects and uh, biology subjects. Um, I haven't got the results in yet, but um, I think I did much better in those. So, um, yeah, I, I had a good uh, first semester so far. That's great, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually I'm having a ball. I'm really enjoying it. This time around, I highly recommend uh, avoiding university when you leave school and go and getting a career and maybe working several decades in, in a career and then work out <laughs> what you really want to learn about and then go yeah. back to university afterwards and, and, you know, become an expert in something you're really interested in rather than what you think you need to do for your career. Yeah, I think it's awesome. And more power to you, buddy. Yeah. So the other thing I'm doing this week is I'm getting ready to fly to Sydney to attend Low Carb Sydney, uh, and that is going to be uh, this coming weekend. Um, and uh, then after my exams in June, I'll be flying to the Food for Thought Conference in Zurich, and this is being run by the British Medical Journal and Swiss Re, a, a massive insurance company. Um, and uh, it's invite only, but it's it's people like Walter Willett, who's one of the uh, probably the most famous nutritionists in the world. Uh, he's an epidemiologist from Harvard uh, yeah. who has come up with a lot of the basis for our nutritional guidelines being low-fat guidelines. And so him on one side, and then we've got Nina Teicholz and Gary Taubes. We've got mm. um, we've got low-carb researchers. We've got low-fat researchers. This really, I think, is going to be a very interesting room to be in. So um, so that's coming up in, in June, which is uh, uh, the other thing I'm getting ready for. So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. I've, I've had a good week. <laughs> Yeah, great week. (laughs) Hey, let's give away some swag, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Some loot. (laughs) Yeah, and we're going to switch gears here for a little while and get away from the coffee mugs and Mm -hmm. do something a little more practical. We're giving away signed copies of Lies My Doctor Told Me by my doctor, Ken Berry. (laughs) And this is a really uh, close-to-my-heart book because I'm actually narrating the audible.com version of this, the audio book. Nice. And and I get to read it all over again, and I get to hear Ken's uh, personality coming through my mouth. It's really kind <laughs> of strange. but That's kind of weird, yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful book, and mm. especially good for you to give to your doctor, because it's concise, it's separated by topic, and uh, in the, the research is cited, although he encourages everybody to just go Google it yourself mm. and find it. It's not hard to find. And uh, when I asked Ken if this was a good idea, he says, each book will be signed by the author and will include a handwritten keto haiku, because I'm also a poet. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor, 
and poet. And poet. (laughs) That's great. So who's our winner this week? This week, our winner is Alexandra Ciccato. Well done, Alexandra. Congratulations. Congratulations, Alexandra. That book is going to be in the mail to you very soon. And so how did Alexandra get into the uh, competition to win? Well, what she did was she signed up for the fan club, the Two Keto Dudes fan club, which you can do at fanclub.twoketo.com. You just answer a few questions and then you qualify to get picked every week for something. We were giving away mugs and now we're giving away signed copies of Lies My Doctor Told Me. And if you don't want to wait to win some swag, you can always buy all sorts of swag online at gear.2kilo.com. That's right. Well, you know what time it is now. Time for... Uh, I think it's time for some mail! <laughs> and yes, I actually do, when I go down to the mailbox, <laughs> scream out mail. <laughs> it scares the hell out of the dog. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll know we have made it when, you know, celebrities are going, mail! <laughs> See Halle Berry screaming male at the top of her lungs. Yeah, I don't think she's a listener. <laughs> Probably not. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'll go first. So this is a review that was left on Apple Podcasts, which used to be iTunes, right? Mm-hmm. iTunes reviews. Yeah. And the title is, This Podcast Changed My Life. Wow. I have been listening to this podcast every week since it began. It almost makes me look forward to Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because, well... Uh, Carl used to have a podcast called Mondays. (laughs) No, I did not. Thank you both for so much of all of your hard work and dedication to this podcast. I've been keto for almost two years, and I know for sure that without your podcast, this journey would have been much more difficult. However, with a weekly dose of motivation from the two keto dudes, it's been a breeze. Listening to your wonderful interviews, amazing recipes, and inspirational (laughs) stories reminds me every week why I've chosen this lifestyle. I have had an unhealthy relationship with food for as long as I can remember, and I've always struggled with my weight and self-confidence. When I discovered keto two years ago, it was like somebody turned a light on. I lost 40 pounds in a few months, and I've kept it off with no hunger or feeling of deprivation. I love my food. Keto has reignited my passion for cooking and eating, with none of the guilt that used to be associated with enjoying a tasty meal. Mm Mm-hmm. The energy, except for when your father-in-law says, you're eating too much fat. (laughs) (laughs) Does he do that? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. (laughs) The energy, mental clarity, overall happiness I feel with keto is incredible. Keto has changed my life for the better in so many ways, and I cannot thank you both enough for being part of it. Looking forward to many more episodes of Two Keto Dudes. Wow, isn't that great? Yeah, you're more than welcome. I mean, this is why we do the show, because uh, for us it was an epiphany when we both uh, discovered keto. We discovered it at different times, but when we both discovered keto, it was an epiphany for us how how wonderful we felt. And so uh, the reason we do the show is because we want to share that. You know, it it took me, um, quite frankly, a, a bit of time to get the confidence that I wasn't damaging myself. Because of the conventional wisdom around eating fat and, you know, cholesterol and all of these things. And yeah. I remember you were you were uh, on pins and needles when I got my first blood test. Tandles, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we were like, well, what if it only works for certain people, right? Yeah. I mean, all these people seem to be having great success with it. Yeah. And at a certain point, it was just like, oh, no, I'm in. All what if in. it only works for Australians? That's what I was worried about. <laughs> 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 you know? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I knew it worked for me, but still. Right. All right. Well, what do you got? Uh, I've got one from the ketogenic forums, and this is a uh, message from Steve. And Steve says, I had a doctor's appointment on Monday to get some requisitions to get my blood work done. Uh, she also mm. wanted to get another ultrasound done to see my what my liver looked like. I had an ultrasound, uh, then a CAT scan, then an MRI done back in August when I was at my heaviest, which was I was at 321 pounds. Uh, luckily, there was a cancellation at the lab, so I got my ultrasound the next day. I got my blood work done on Monday, uh, though she flagged it as a random uh, rather than fasting because I was chewing gum. I had no idea that could affect mm. it. So Steve says, Any, even though I'd been diagnosed with fatty liver last year, I was still drinking a lot last year. I kicked that just before New Year's. I had a couple of glasses of red wine since, but nothing since going keto at the start of March. So basically stopped drinking in New Year and went keto yeah. in March, and now we're talking about April. So uh, he mm. says, I'm sure the efforts that I've been making pre-keto, no bread, avoiding sugar, minimizing carbs helped, but how much I've noticed the inflammation and swelling go down on my liver, that has been phenomenal since going keto. Mm. I can actually feel it many days on my right side. Mm. Well, he goes on to say, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Uh, the ultrasound showed that I've made massive reductions in the fatty incursions in my liver. Uh, she said mm. I should be able to completely reverse my liver's woes with what I'm doing. Uh, he says, regarding my pre-diabetic concerns, I have some skin discoloration that looks a little bit like acanthosis nigricans. Uh, this is like a discoloration around the neck. And uh, he says that discoloration has actually faded considerably since I first noticed it in February. And that is wow. actually a, a, an indication on the body that somebody is diabetic. Yeah. Um, anyway, Steve goes on to say, when I got my blood work done, my HbA1c is 5.1. Well done. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, his cholesterol numbers are also much improved over the blood work that he had back in fall. Um, he says he's hugely relieved that he's improving his health so much. Wow. Great. Yeah. There, there was a couple of responses. One from old Doug who says, our livers are amazing. They can take pretty brutal abuse for a long time and they'll stay right in there, keeping us alive right until the end. There's... Ours or both. <laughs> <They're> in, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and there was a response by Di Diane who says, reading this thread, I realize I've gone from being angry at my weak, sick, fragile body to being grateful for its enormous capacity to heal itself once given the right fuel. And that, that oh, to me amen. is that that's the essence of keto is that, oh, yeah. you know, I used to think that, that my body was flawed because it, it wanted to carry too much weight. It wanted right. to be diabetic. It appeared, well, maybe I shouldn't say it wanted, it certainly appeared all these things. But right. as soon as I changed the fuel that I was feeding my body, um, all of a sudden I could rely on it to, I mean, yep. it, it, it brought me down to a safe weight um, and I appear to be at a weight where I can fast for several days, I can mm. jump on my bike and ride for a couple of hundred kilometres and mm. uh, I don't have to worry about fueling. Um, I don't have too much weight that would make that difficult. I don't mm -hmm. have too little weight that would make that impossible. You know, mm. it just seems that my body is just really, it's behaving well and giving me the appropriate body for the kind of activity that I want to give, make it do. So, you know, I, yeah. I'm personally, it's Richard speaking, of course, I'm, I'm personally very, very happy with what my body's done for me. So, Yeah, me anyway. too. And uh, you just nailed it right there is that, and this is probably why keto people and people who are fat adapted are just, you know, want to shout it from the rooftops and shake people and say, what are you doing? You know, right. uh, it, you can feel so much better. And it's just because we feel so good. Our body feels like 
amazing. You mm. discover the miracles that your body can perform when you just get the poison out. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. true enough. Ah, oh, well, those were inspirational mails. Thank you for those. And mm. uh, Richard was reading that from the Ketogenic Forums, which is a free forum. You can participate in at forum.2keto.com. Right. And we'll have a link to that thread in the show notes. Of course. All right. Now let's get to an interview that we did uh, closer to the beginning of April with Dr. Mm. Jason Fung about his new book, among other things, about his new book, The uh, Diabetes Code. And uh, let's just roll it. And uh, on the line with us today is Dr. Jason Fung. Welcome to Two Keto Dudes, Dr. Fung. Hey, good to talk to you guys again. Hi, Jason. Good to talk to you. We haven't talked in a while. You've uh, been on vacation very busy, which is always a good thing. But we noticed that a few things have been going on uh, on your social media posts that we wanted to talk about. First of all, you got a new book out, and I guess you're all into tea now. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit more about obesity, not just obesity, but type 2 diabetes specifically. And so that's this book is sort of a follow-on to that called The Diabetes Code. Right. And some people ask, oh, well, hey, didn't you talk all about diabetes? Actually, if you read The Obesity Code, there's actually nothing in there about type 2 diabetes. <laughs> and that was deliberate because when uh, we envisioned the books originally, we thought about it as sort of both obesity and type 2 diabetes, but we didn't want to make it one giant sort of book because mm. it's um, something that's just too much. So we broke yeah. it into two, and the first part was the obesity code. The second part is the diabetes code. And mm. there's a lot of information there which is uh, specific to what is type 2 diabetes, what is insulin resistance, how to think about it, how to prevent it, how to reverse it, that kind of thing. Obviously, there's a bit of overlap, so I uh, so each book can stand alone. But it's better if you sort of read the two together to get a full understanding of that. And that was the intention right from the beginning. And a lot of people read the di the obesity code actually just followed it and their diabetes reversed, which is great. Um, but <laughs> the the sort of science, um, and I see these two as more uh, science books than anything else. The science is really uh, contained within the diabetes code for prediabetes and diabetes. Right. But of course, the advice, low carb diets, high fat diets. Diets, uh, intermittent fasting, that, of course, is the sort of same advice that uh, we've always been given. So there, there's not a lot of overlap in the two books. If you look at the American population, it's actually about 14% type 2 diabetes and about 30-something percent prediabetes. So you're really looking at somewhere close to 50% of the American adult population with prediabetes and diabetes. And that wow. puts them at much higher risk of heart right. disease and strokes and all mm. that. And that's what we're trying to do is prevent this sort of uh, disease uh, going forward. And that's, that's what the Diabetes Code is about. It's released, um, I think, now. Is it specifically type 2 diabetes or does it cover type 1 diabetes as well, Jason? It covers type 1, but more briefly. So type 1 diabetes is more about uh, insulin deficiency. But what happens over the long term is that these people take sort of high doses of insulin because they're told to eat 50, 60% carbohydrates. So they're right. taking sort of a lot of insulin over a long period of time. And they develop right. this thing, uh, which is known as diabetes. That is, yeah. they have 
not just insulin deficiency, but they have everything that you get with insulin excess. So all mm-hmm. the sort of obesity, the uh, metabolic syndrome, they get the same thing, which is seen in type 2 diabetes, which is insulin excess, but they're actually mm. completely deficient in their own insulin. Oh, and the only yeah. reason they get that is because they're really taking too much of this uh, insulin injections. So what mm. you can do for these people is to put them on a very low-carbohydrate diet, which decreases the amount of insulin that is required so sure. that you prevent the uh, diseases of both too little insulin and the diseases of too much insulin. Because it's very right. interesting um, because for many, many years, all we thought about was controlling blood glucose. And right. blood glucose, uh, you can control very well if you just take huge doses of insulin. So that's what we told people to do. Hey, if your sugar is high because you're eating a lot of white bread, it's okay. Just take more insulin. We thought that was okay. Uh, but yeah. the, when you look at the studies, for example, there's two studies that I, that look at this exact question. That is, we know that type 1 diabetes people, they, they die of a lot more um, heart disease than compared to non-diabetic people. Right. Um, hmm. But if you look at the, the people who have survived a long time, so they did this goal and cohort study where they looked at type 1 diabetics who had survived sort of 50 years with their disease. Mm. And they just sort of look back and say, what are the commonalities of these people? So all these people had done extremely well with their type 1 diabetes. And the funny part was not a single one of them had a blood glucose in the normal range. It was sort of high-ish, not very high, not very low. Um, So clearly, the control of the blood glucose was not the sort of most important factor in uh, survival. The one thing that was common to them all was a low insulin dose. They didn't Mm. need to take a lot of insulin. Because the point is that a normal uh, human on a normal diet would take something like 15 units of insulin a day. That's roughly an average of uh, what they're going to produce. And you have type 1s who are taking 80 units a day. Well, if a normal person does 15 and you're taking 80, you're going to have all the problems of too much insulin, which is exactly what we see. These type 1s, they get fat, they get um, atherosclerosis, heart disease, strokes, everything that the type 2s get, and yet they're at the very opposite end of the spectrum in that they don't have their own insulin. So Mm. for type 1s, there's some information that is certainly relevant in the long term and uh, kind of puts together the um, the whole thesis for them. Jason, in your book, do you spend significant amount of time on all the complications that um, type 2 diabetics can I- expect in the future if left untreated? I find that with at least everybody that I talk to, uh, their doctors don't want to go there with them. You know, they just say it's a progressive disease. We can only slow it down. But but they're not, I, don't, I, I won't say sufficiently scaring them, but not really preparing them for the end story of diabetes. And I notice you don't shy away from that. And I wondered if in the book, you you um, g- explain that to people. Yeah, I, I do uh, spend a chapter talking about the complications of type 2 diabetes. But, um, and as you know, I'm a kidney specialist. So I see a lot of type 2 diabetic uh, kidney disease. Yeah. And a few years ago, it sort of became obvious to me that what our medical system does for type 2 diabetes is really very poor because we tell people that it's a chronic progressive disease and therefore there's Mm. nothing you can do, but it's actually a big lie. And that's one Mm. of the things that sort of 
stunned me at first was that it's just a lie we tell ourselves um, as doctors, not as patients, because it, it, patients um, are getting their information, obviously, from the doctor who tells them it's chronic and progressive. But it's not actually true because we know that if you lose weight, your diabetes goes away. And this mm. is the thing about end-stage disease, which is whether you're talking about blindness, amputation, kidney disease, strokes, heart attacks, cancer, all of these sort of late-stage complications of type 2 diabetes, we tend to focus on them. It's like, oh, if you have diabetic kidney disease, let me give you this drug. And it's mm. like, okay, but the very term itself, diabetic kidney disease, tells you what the answer is. <laughs> if it's diabetic kidney disease, you need to get rid of the diabetes. The diabetes, okay? yeah. Mm. Bottom line. If you have diabetes, you'll get kidney disease. You have to get rid of it. That's the root mm. cause. You can't say, okay, you have diabetic kidney disease. Let me give you this drug. It wasn't a right. drug deficiency. It wasn't that <laughs> I was lacking Ramipril, and that was the reason I got diabetic <laughs> kidney disease. It's because I had diabetes. And then again, you go to the root cause. Diabetes is caused essentially by an excess of sugar in the body. Mm. And that's the whole point. If you have too much sugar in your body, then you only need to do two things. One, you need to stop putting more sugar in. And that's a low-carbohydrate <laughs> yeah. diet. And two, yeah. you need to burn it off. And that's intermittent yeah. fasting. And yeah. the good news is that is an entirely natural solution to the problem that takes care right. of the root cause of your problem. And it's not too much sugar in the blood because what insulin does is it takes that sugar that's in the blood and simply crams that into your body. Sure. So what happens is that if you have um, all this excess sugar, insulin is going to keep pushing it into the body. That's what it does. So it's like a sugar bowl. Your body's like a sugar bowl. At birth, it's it's empty. And it slowly fills up as you eat too much sugar. At some mm -hmm. point, the sugar bowl is full. So then when you eat sugar, it just spills out into the blood. Mm. So the solution that we give people is, oh, hey, your blood sugar is too high. Let me give you insulin. Does insulin get rid of that sugar? No, not really. What it does is it takes that sugar and crams that back into your body. And <laughs> so you're... You're, you cram it into your liver, you, you, you turn that into fat through the process mm -hmm. of de novo lipogenesis, you get fat, which we all know insulin causes fat uh, gain, and mm -hmm. your sugar goes sort of elsewhere, goes into your kidneys, goes into your eyes, goes everywhere it's not supposed to go, it goes into your legs, and that's why diabetics get skin infections that you never see with anybody else. Because there's so much sugar sitting there that you can, you can grow these weird organisms that are never seen in anybody else. Why do diabetics right. get foot ulcers that nobody else gets? Because they have mm. so much sugar sitting there. It's, mm. it's, it's like a piece of meat that's just sitting there in, in a sugar broth. It's going to rot. And that's yeah. what happens to our bodies. I've heard it said uh, diabetes is like your body rotting from the inside out, literally. Yeah, that is exactly it. And it's because there's too much sugar in it. The blood glucose might be perfectly fine because what you've done, of course, is taken that blood sugar, pushed it into the body where you couldn't see it. Mm. And then your doctor says, hey, your blood sugar is doing really well. You're really doing great. But you've mm. gained weight. You've got heart disease. You've got mm. diabetic foot ulcers. And your doctor thinks you're doing great because he's just looking at the blood glucose. But it's the whole mm. body glucose. And that's the whole problem. That's the crux of the problem is that if there's too much sugar in your body, you got to get rid of it. If you're not getting rid of it, you're not doing anybody any good. And interestingly, the patients know this more than anything else because when you put them on insulin, they gain like 20 pounds. Then they come back and they say, look, doctor, you told me I need to lose weight, but you put me on insulin, I gained like 30 pounds. And 
how is that good? And the answer is that it's not good. If you're gaining weight, then your diabetes is going to get worse. And then I'm going to have to give you more insulin. And mm. then you're going to gain more weight. So mm. they know that this solution that we're giving people is actually completely incorrect. Mm. And they're going to get worse over time. And sure enough, they get worse over time. So as yeah. a doctor, you see that this standard treatment that you're giving people is not working. It's not working for like 99% of people. You have to face the fact that one, type 2 diabetes is reversible. Because you know mm -hmm. this, everybody knows this, you lose weight, your diabetes goes away. Yet every single one of their patients is getting worse. So uh -huh. you can either think that the advice you give is bad, you're mm -hmm. giving the wrong advice and you're a bad doctor. Or you simply say to yourself and you lie to yourself and you say, well, this is just a bad disease and it's chronic and progressive and I'm doing as mm. much as I can. It's like getting yeah. older. You can't get younger no matter what you do. Diabetes yeah. is the same. You get older, your sugars get worse, but it's not true because you can go back to the 1960s and there's no diabetes. In China, you can go to 1980 where there's 1% diabetes and now there's like 11% diabetes. It's not mm. genetic. It's mm. not chronic and progressive. It's not a part of normal human aging. But the, mm. as doctors, we've lied to ourselves because we can't face the, the alternative, which is that we're prescribing the incorrect treatment to 99% of type 2 diabetics. Right. And that's the real problem. There's also a time-critical issue, isn't there? Because if you have diabetes, there's a good chance that you're going to get diabetic kidney disease. And you can reverse diabetes, but can you reverse diabetic kidney disease? It's very difficult. So I mm. had, of course, hoped that it would be reversible, but the whole yeah. process of diabetic kidney disease takes 15 to 20 years. So right. by the time you start, if you have it, by the time you start reversing it, you can't undo all that damage. It's like as, as if, if you have a car and you never change the oil and then it breaks down mm. and they say, oh, I'm going to start changing the oil in my car. <laughs> it's like, well, that's great. Right now, but <laughs> You can have all the fresh oil you want in a car that's <laughs> pitted and broken. Yeah. Exactly. And that's that's exactly what we see. So I've had people whose diabetes has completely gone away, but their mm. kidney disease actually continues to get worse. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I'm writing this book. That's why I'm talking to you guys, because you really have to get it really early in the game because you have to stop all this sort of subclinical damage that's going mm. on underneath the surface uh, mm. in order to prevent all this disease. Sure. Have you ever encountered someone, and I have, who's definitely overweight, definitely looking with ha having the uh, symptoms outwardly of insulin resistance? The, there's like um, uh, darkening spots on the neck and the back of the neck and, and uh, skin tags and stuff like that, bags under the eyes, just like not looking healthy and very overweight. And you say, how's your blood sugar? And they say, perfect. Great. Yeah. I mean, you what it just reminded me of that when you said that you know, you have these people who are sick and still their blood sugar is okay because their insulin is working. Obviously, they're overweight. The insulin is shoving all that sugar into fat cells. But uh, you know, when you what do you do? Do you say, "Well, have you had your fasting insulin tested?" Is that the test? Um, that's one of the tests, but if you have all those other clinical manifestations, you can go ahead and do it. And people are often confused about this, and this is uh, one of the things that we try and explore in the Diabetes Code is that 
the disease is really a disease of too much insulin. So if you think about what's happening, you eat, insulin goes up, it starts to tell your body to store food energy, which you store as glycogen or you store as body fat. Sure. So if you eat a lot of a very high carbohydrate diet, for example, your insulin is going to be up all the time. And then therefore, it's going to keep shoving all this carbohydrate into your body. Mm. Your carbohydrate goes to the liver. The liver takes this and turns it into fat. And it starts to send it out into the fat cells, the adipocytes. And that's okay because fat in a fat cell is not bad. It's when mm. you start to back up the liver and start getting all this fat in the other organs that it becomes a problem. So I use the story of uh, sort of, it's like a house, for example. So say, suppose you live on a street and every day insulin comes by and drops off a little sort of a couple of teaspoons of sugar for you to use and you <laughs> use it and everything's fine. Now, all of a sudden, over time, what happens is that insulin comes around and gives you, instead of a couple of teaspoons, starts giving you little teacups. And then it starts giving you whole barrels of sugar. So <laughs> you put away in your house. And it's okay until your house is sort of full of sugar. And then you, you don't want it anymore. The insulin, which is normal... It's just excessive. So mm. then you bar the door and you say, okay, don't give it to me anymore, okay, because I don't want any more sugar. My whole house is starting to rot and stink. That's insulin resistance. The cells, the adipocytes, the fat cells are basically saying, okay, no more, no mass. Yeah. Yeah. Don't give that to me anymore. So therefore, the, the, the sugar stays in the streets. It stays in the blood. So you mm. see that mm. as high blood glucose, that's when you make the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. But the process mm. of filling up this house with uh, sugar, sugar, sugar is what's been going on this whole time that you haven't known about it. But the insulin mm. levels are high because it needs that high insulin levels to push that sugar into the house. So as you develop insulin resistance, that is, you've barred the door, you don't want this sugar anymore, <laughs> body yeah. compensates by producing higher and higher and higher doses of insulin to mm. force that sugar in. So the cell is full of sugar, doesn't want any more sugar. So it's in the blood and the body doesn't like it in the, the blood glucose. So it produces mm. this compensatory hyperinsulinemia, which is it compensates by making more insulin to shove more sugar in. But you see the problem, of course, yeah. as you keep shoving more sugar into the house, there's going to be more resistance. So then you put yeah. more bars on the door, you get guard dogs, and you're in this race between <laughs> insulin and barring the door. And eventually you get to the point where the insulin that your body produces cannot shove any more sugar into this house. And that's when you become type 2 diabetic. So the process mm. has gone on. So you can get a lot of obesity uh, because you're you know, turning this sugar into fat. So as your house sort of builds up with sugar, you turn it into fat and send it elsewhere. You send it to your cousin, mm. you send it to your neighbor, and you just keep <laughs> sending it all over the place. And it's okay, but that's where the extra fat comes in. Is is high insulin by itself, you know, chronic high insulin, it, does it have um, poisonous properties to the body or is it just the glucose itself that, that causes the inflammation and in is insulin by itself have bad deleterious properties? Um, it's actually the um, insulin itself is a normal hormone. So obviously in type one diabetes, you can't survive without insulin. Mm. And the thing is that it's really the excessive amount. So everything is sort of 
bad when it's out of range. So if you have thyroid hormone, it's like thyroid hormone is neither good nor bad. But if it's too low, it's bad. And if it's too high, it's good. Hmm. Everything is like that. So everything in your body. So if your blood count, if it's there's a normal range, if it's too low, you're anemic. If it's too high, you're polycythemic. Both are bad. Insulin's mm. really the same. So if you keep your insulin levels in this sort of normal range by eating natural foods and so on, it's mm. neither good nor bad. It just is. But if you have insulin, insulin, insulin all the time, and this is the thing that we've done to ourselves because insulin is a hormone that's most concerned with the diet. There's going to be two things that are going to raise insulin more than anything else. One is eating a high-carbohydrate diet, which we, of course, told everybody to do in 1977. So right. we told basically the whole world to eat lots of carbs. So insulin is going high. Then the other big change is that we – and this was not an official guideline, but people started eating all the time. Once you started mm. eating sort of toast and jam for breakfast, you got hungry at sort of like 10.30, so then you needed to eat a low-fat muffin. So instead of eating three times a day, people are eating six, seven, eight times a day. And that's the other big change that has happened um, mm. sort of unintentionally. Then we said, well, because you're eating low-fat, it's okay. And, now, and then you get to the point where people say, oh, you should snack all the time. It's like – who came up with that dumb idea like it wasn't the doctors that's for sure uh you talk to your grandmother and she said don't snack yeah but also it's because of this whole low fat thing because if you're going to eat a muffin in the morning you're going to be hungry at 10 30 then you start thinking Mm. that it's good that you're hungry at 10 30 when it really wasn't good if you ate an egg you wouldn't have been hungry but you ate toast and jam instead so you are hungry yeah sugar makes you hungry and fat satisfies hunger Simple as that. Yeah, it's because a lot of the refined foods don't activate these natural satiety mechanisms. That is, um, you just you just get hungry, and everybody knows this. Right? Eating an egg is totally different. Eating a piece of steak is different from drinking a soda. So, what about inflammation? I mean, inflammation is one of the markers of metabolic syndrome. Is inflammation caused more by high levels of glucose or high levels of insulin? Do we know? Um, I think both are important. So the point is that both glucose and insulin are high. So there's glucotoxicity, that is toxicity from too much glucose, and we know for sure that happens. And that's the sort Mm. of prevailing paradigm for decades is get your glucose as low as possible. And that's what we did as doctors. We gave people as much medications as they needed to get that blood glucose down because we only looked at the blood glucose. But what we didn't recognize is that, so there's glucotoxicity, but we didn't recognize the insulin toxicity. So if you're Mm. going to give tons of insulin to get that glucose down, now all of a sudden what you're doing is you're trading the toxicity of too much insulin and getting your glucose down. So you got less glucotoxicity, but tons of insulin toxicity. You're basically shoving all that sugar into your body, so you're not getting the bad effect of the glucose, but you're getting all the bad effects of the insulin, which is, of course, going to make you gain weight. You're going to get the metabolic syndrome and so on. So I think both are actually quite bad for you. So the, 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 the point is that you need to get both your glucose and your insulin down at the same time, you can't not take insulin and then have your blood glucose high because you're going to have glucotoxicity and low insulin toxicity. Right. And you can't have amazing blood glucose and taking huge doses of insulin because you're going to get insulin toxicity and no glucotoxicity. Mm-hmm. So you have to get both down at the same time. How are you going to do that? Well, the point is that if, if the disease is simply about too much sugar in your body, then get rid of all that sugar. 
yeah. intermittent fasting, low carbohydrate diets. Then, of course, you see your blood glucose will fall. So if you don't eat, your blood glucose will fall. Mm-hmm. If you don't eat, your insulin will fall. Well, that's a perfect solution. That's exactly what we need to do. And that's what we see clinically. We see tons of people getting better and better with their diabetes, all completely naturally and all completely for free. Because we're not trying to sell them drugs. We're just trying to take away these drugs. Mm. One of the things that you were uh, one of the leading voices on was that it's not only what you eat, but it's when you eat. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, one of the sort of lost pieces of obesity, type 2 diabetes, is that the frequency of what you do stuff makes a huge, huge difference in everything you do almost. So if you have a one-time fee, um, you know, you make $100, that's great. If you do it mm-hmm. once, it's like no big deal. But if you make $100 sort of every hour, hey, all of a sudden you're really <laughs> quite wealthy. Um, yeah. But we sort of ignore that and we say, okay, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Or mm. for example, it's the story of the boy who cried wolf. Mm. So what happens is that if you cry wolf, once Pete, the villagers come running. If you mm-hmm. cry wolf all the time, then <laughs> people get resistant to that. People say, mm. oh, there's nothing. It's not going to mm. happen. So what's the solution here? The solution is to stop crying wolf. You stop for a month <laughs> and then cry, the people will come running. But what right. we've told people is that the solution is to cry wolf, but just a little softer. I'm like, that's not going to work. That's definitely not going to work. It's like, that's the sort of calorie restriction. Oh, cut a few calories every day. Your body just gets used to that. You can't yeah. do it like that. And that's the whole That's the whole point. So the frequency which you, you do something makes a big difference physiologically. So if you look at any hormone in the body, it's not ever constant. So thyroid hormone, parathyroid hormone, cortisol, noradrenaline, all of these hormones, they spike and then they go down to very low levels. They pulse, don't they? They pulse. They're all pulsatile. Um, Mm. And there's a reason for that because if you kept that level high all the time, you'd get resistance. So what you do is you get a pulse, usually like once a day, you get a pulse Mm -hmm. of cortisol, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So you get that pulse, then it goes down to zero. So then the next time it pulses, you're just as sensitive to it again. And again, we understand this. If if you look at a baby in a noisy airport, it's sleeping fine. But you put Mm. it in a quiet room and you, you know, a little creak of the floorboards and it wakes up screaming. Well, what's the difference? The sound was way louder in the other thing, but it was constant. So it didn't Mm. really matter. There's resistance to it. So this this idea is that you really need to cycle what you eat. So the way you're supposed to eat is that you're supposed to have times when you're feeding and times Mm -hmm. when you're fasting. In the fed state, your insulin is high. Your body's going to store food energy. In the fasted Mm. state, insulin drops, and you're going to burn food energy. So you need to Mm. keep those in balance. And we used to. We used to eat sort of 10 to 12 hours a day and fast from 12 to 14 hours. And that's Mm. why the first meal is called breakfast. You break your fast. Every single day you're supposed to break your fast, which means that every single day you're supposed to be fasting. Now, if you look at studies, so they did this great study where they gave people a smartphone app and they asked them to record how often they ate and so on. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. They said that the the first decile, so the the, the 10% of people that ate the fewest times is 3.3 times a day. So that's crazy (laughs) because the average (laughs) in the 1960s was three breakfast, lunch, dinner. 
Now, mm. if you only ate three times a day, you'd be in the lowest 10%. That is like 90 plus percent of people are eating more frequently than you. Wow. wow. The top 10 percentile of people were eating like 10 times a day. <gasps> wow. It's like, okay. Wow. So the average is somewhere around six or seven times a day. So you're basically eating from the time you get up to the time you go to bed. You're spending all your time in the feeding, in the fed state, which is insulin is high. You're telling your body to store food energy. You're not giving it any time other than when you're sleeping to actually burn food energy. Then mm. everybody's wondering, hey, why am I obese and getting type 2 diabetes? It's because you're not giving your body any time to burn off that energy. Right. Mm. Dr. Fung, in your clinical experience, and this has certainly been my experience, I want to know if it reflects in your thousands of patients, is that the time of day that you stop eating uh, makes a huge difference in terms of um, you know, weight loss. Uh, I, I, I find that if I eat any time after 6 p.m., that uh, my weight loss doesn't, I'm, you know, doesn't happen. And yeah. if I stop eating before six, you know, and I and I eat in a sh shorter window, but I stop particularly, you know, five or six hours, seven hours before I go to sleep, uh, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and there's a very good reason for that. So if you look um, at weight loss, I mean, it's really all about insulin for the most part. So. Mm. When you look at the circadian rhythm, what you see is that you can give somebody a meal first thing in the morning and give them the exact same meal at like evening time before bed. Mm -hmm. And the insulin response of the body is completely different depending on the time of day. So mm -hmm. uh, in the morning, you get the least insulin response. If you look at circadian rhythms of hunger, it's also the lowest. And highest hmm. at about 8, 8 p.m. So highest hunger um, is 8 p.m. Lowest hunger is 8 a.m. Insulin effect also peaks at, in the late evening. So if you're eating at 9 p.m., the exact same meal that you ate at sort of 9 a.m., you're going to get more of an insulin effect. So eating late at night is actually particularly bad for you because you're mm. going to be hungrier, so you're going to eat more. And for the amount that you eat, you're actually going to get more insulin effect, which is more um, effect of storing this uh, food energy or body fat. So yeah. I think the ideal thing is not necessarily to eat breakfast, which a lot of people do successfully. Which, and I have no problem with that. But to me, it doesn't make sense to eat when you're not hungry. So therefore, I actually think the best thing to do is sort of crowd your meals in that midday period, sort of 12 mm. to 2 sort of thing, and have your largest meal there and sort of have like less outside of that. And then it's like, hey, that's what they used to do in Europe where there was very little yeah. obesity. Um, and places like Spain where uh, mm. dinner is sort of an afterthought. It's you mm. eat this giant meal at like 2 p.m. And then you have like a tiny little bit at nighttime. Tapas it's like, yeah, yeah, tapas, exactly. And it's not mm. a giant meal. Now we do a large dinner because that's what is, convenient for our work schedule you and i mm. work like during the day and at night we go home to our family and that's the time that we have generally our largest meal but it's not necessarily physiologic i think the the, the most ideal is to actually have that earlier in the day and this is exactly your clinical experience uh carl to 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 have that and and, and this is what i say mm. i mean there's sort of two issues i mean one you have to fit the fit this into your schedule and it doesn't work for mm. everybody's schedule right. so you have to work around it but at the same time if you understand this then you can you can make these changes and if you're flexible hey some people do very well by doing things like that right sure
I know that breakfast cereal manufacturers have used that study showing that you make more insulin at the beginning of the day as a, a reason, a justification for why you should use their product. <laughs> so they say, well, yeah. you make more insulin, so then yeah, you can have the, the whole grain uh, breakfast cereal for breakfast. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, the breakfast cereal manufacturers have really done a lot of research, sort of. And I just yeah. use that term <laughs> loosely. <laughs> research, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because the whole point is that, and we know this happens, if you pay a researcher, if Kellogg's pays a researcher to find that breakfast is really good for you, they will find that breakfast is really good for you. Whether it is or <laughs> yeah. not, it makes no difference. So the likelihood of finding a positive study, if you're funded, and the same for pharmaceuticals, same for sugar, mm -hmm. same for meat, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If you pay a researcher to find out why sugar is good for you, they will find out why sugar is good for you. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the truth. And this is sort of this bastardization of science, which right. is really detrimental uh, to public health. But again, they've sort of funded so many studies on why you have to eat breakfast that we think it's crazy not to, you know, to be to, to go from your bed to your bathroom door without starting to shove some, you know, granola bars in our mouths. And and then and, you know, it's 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 crazy because we teach our children this. Yeah. Uh, they don't go to school with breakfast. It's like, okay, I rarely eat breakfast on a weekday because yeah, no. I find it very inconvenient now more mm. than anything else. I'm not hungry, I don't want to eat and I won't right. clean up. So yeah. I, I mostly skip it. But yeah, if you do that as a child, they'll say, oh, my God, like you have <laughs> to eat breakfast. Oh, my God, like you didn't eat breakfast here. Let me give you a granola bar. And they're well-meaning people, but, uh, you know, it's full of sugar and refined grains and so on. Yeah, sure. And um, so that's a bit of a problem. And so because of this whole um, uh, corruption of the evidence base, Evidence-based medicine itself is very unreliable uh, these mm. days because you have pharmaceuticals that are allowed to do studies on their own products and set their own horn and pay you know, Harvard researchers a lot of money. And when you pay somebody to find it, they'll find it. So mm. that's why you have to really just follow some common sense. People say things like, oh, you know, you need breakfast because you need energy in the morning. And it's like, it's simply not true. Most important meal of the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. have energy, it's called body fat. <laughs> exactly. And, and the thing is that your body, before you wake up around 4 or 5 a.m., has this something called a counter-regulatory hormone surge. That is cortisol, noradrenaline, and so on, go up. And they actually push glucose into the system to get you ready for the day. So your body right. has already gotten you ready for the day. Eating is not going to make you more or less ready than mm. you you would have been otherwise. Mm. So the whole point is that, yes, if you like breakfast, it's not bad. You get less insulin effect at eating breakfast than at eating late at night, for example. So yeah, you can do very well eating breakfast. I have nothing against that. But if you're going to eat a big breakfast, don't eat a late dinner. If you're going to eat a late mm. dinner, then maybe don't eat breakfast. Like You have to make those sort of adjustments once you understand mm. what's going on. But there's no physiologic reason why you need to start eating at 7 a.m. every single day. You could break <laughs> your fast at 12 noon it's it's okay it doesn't make yeah. that much of a difference but you're going to live <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> can we talk about tea because uh, yeah. it's very rare that you sort of get behind a product and i noticed that you're you're getting behind some some fasting tea what drew you to this idea and and why this particular stuff yeah so tea is actually something we've uh, always encouraged people to drink and that's that's one thing um we've always had this idea that 
we wanted to um, have some kind of product to help people fasting. So fasting is not easy. We know mm -hmm. that. And there must be things that can help people. So one of the things we've always talked about is green tea. Green tea has these things called catechins, um, mm -hmm. which are these sort of polyphenols, which are these chemical compounds, particularly in green tea, but also uh, found you know, much lower in black tea. Black tea has the catechins, which are fermented into something called theoflavins. Mm. So the catechins in green tea have this very interesting effect. And there's a little bit of data, not a huge amount of data, because it, again, there's not a lot of um, people funding it. But it can, uh, it blocks a enzyme called COMT, which is breaks down noradrenaline. So what you find is that when you take big, big doses of green tea extract, you can actually increase levels of noradrenaline, which keeps your energy expenditure high. Mm. At the same time, what you see is that there's an appetite suppressing effect because adrenaline, noradrenaline is part of the sort of fight or flight response. When adrenaline goes up, you don't get hungry. When you're faced with lion, you're not like, oh man, I could really use a hamburger. <laughs> uh, you're like, okay, let's get out of here. So it's a natural effect of this sort of noradrenaline, sympathetic nervous system activation. So there's obvious a lot of uh, synergy with that because if you can drink a lot of green tea, then you can uh, get some of this benefit. Is the benefit huge? No, absolutely not. It's a, it's a small effect, but it's mm. there. It's about a 4% increase in energy expenditure. So mm, not nice. inconsequential when you um, when you sort of uh, go go sort of day after day after day. If it's just one mm, day yeah. that you're drinking tea, that's not going to make any difference. But if you're drinking it mm. every single day, and this is what you see in Asia, People don't drink tea the same. Here, you go to Starbucks and you get a tea for like $3, right? Mm. Uh, and it's like, oh, that's pretty expensive. So you drink one a day. It, that's not the way they drink tea uh, in in um, China, for example. So when they go out for lunch, it's called yum cha, which is drink tea. Mm -hmm. That's the literal <laughs> translation of going out for lunch. Uh, and you have yeah. this sort of pot of tea and you just keep adding water to it and you just keep drinking it through the whole day. So you're not mm -hmm. drinking one cup a day. You're drinking six, seven, eight cups a day. Because mm -hmm. really, you're not drinking water. You're drinking tea instead of water. And some mm -hmm. of it may be low, uh, like diluted, because they use the same sort of pot. Um, so this is the thing. So there's some benefits in um, having high doses of catechins, both as an appetite suppressant and in terms of keeping metabolic rate stable, which is really the crux of weight loss. So for five years, we've been talking about this. Um, but we never got around to sort of getting a tea. So we said, well, there's huge benefit, but at the same time, other than recommending people drink some tea, that's it. Now, mm. so I started working with um, the, this tea company called Peak Tea. And the, the reason it's a sort of a unique uh, sort of situation is that they do this cold brew sort of technology. So nice. they have organic tea in China, which is from a you know high altitude single plantation. But what you do is you steep the tea in sort of room temperature or colder water. And what you get is you extract a lot more of the catechins out of the green tea compared mm. to if you just do a hot brew. It's just mm. like when you do cold brew coffee, you, you put the grinds in, you put the water in and let it steep for like overnight. This is the same yeah. thing. And so instead of having you to steep for sort of eight, 10 hours, which you can do yourself, like as, as mm. I said, I have no problem with people doing it themselves. It tastes mm. kind of bitter uh, because of the higher dose of catechins, mm. um, but it's also very 
very inconvenient. It's not like you can just do mm. this all the time. So what they do is they do the cold brew, then they dehydrate it so that it's actually just crystals. And you just put it mm. uh, the crystals in and mix it. It's very convenient, and it oh, delivers wow. a much higher dose of catechins than you can get with regular green tea. Now, I drink quite a bit of green tea, so I alternate. It tastes really good, mm. mm-hmm. and that's what I said. I said, listen, guys. Why don't we do something that's marketed specifically for fasting? Because I want people to get this benefit. And, Mm. you know, a lot of people get on me about, oh, you're selling out. Like, I like oh my god like <laughs> yes i'm selling out by doing all this free blogs and free podcasts yeah, right. and your free yeah. podcasts and free lectures yeah. and it's like yeah and i'm selling out because you have to spend 10 bucks for some tea it's like okay first yeah. of all it's not my company i don't own yeah. any part of it i did mm-hmm. uh consult but the point was that there was no fasting tea available mm. because we put it together with some things so as we put it together with matcha to give it a bit more body it helps a bit nice. more with the hunger yeah, like we matcha. put it together yeah. with some ginger and some licorice and some uh, citrus at night to be more of a calming effect and the point mm. is that i don't care if you buy it or not it makes no difference to me the only thing i care <laughs> about is that if you want something to help you that something is available to help you yeah right, so sure. yes i did consult with them i spent a lot of time so then I, they have to pay me like i'm not going to mm-hmm. spend my own time like hours and hours of my own time trying to develop something on their product on their product mm. yeah it's not mm. my product but mm. uh so that's that's the point so that's the whole thing now you can totally do it yourself and if you don't need it then don't buy it that's the whole point Mm. like (laughs) if you try it and buy it and don't like it and it doesn't help you then save your money what have you lost like 10 bucks um (laughs) that's about it and and so this is this is the thing it's really something that wasn't available because if it was available if somebody had a line of fasting tea that had very high catechin levels then Mm i i probably wouldn't have done this yeah Yeah, i would say oh go go buy this. And we do this with other products like bone broth and stuff. Mm. We don't have a line of bone broth, but Mm. we have people who have good products and we say, go do it. I'm not going to spend, I'm not going to waste my time. The funniest part I got to tell you is this. (laughs) People always say, oh, he's selling out. He's got to make a buck. I'm like, Right. Do you know what would He's make me... He's a kidney me... doctor. <laughs> I know. That's exactly right. Kidney rolling <laughs> <there> from kidney <laughs> doctoring. <laughs> no, that is true because you want to know what would make me the most money is to shut the hell up and just <laughs> prescribe insulin. Then I could yeah. see so many people and yeah. Yeah. they wouldn't get better. So mm. I'd be so right. busy that I'd be, I would be rolling in it. Now I spend all this time trying to promote things that make very mm. little money, like, I you know, know 10 right. bucks for a box of tea, as opposed to 500 bucks for a box of insulin sort of thing. Mm. It's like, mm. yeah, what I should do if I wanted to make money. <laughs> now I always think this is the, the stupidest thing that people ever say is that, yeah, if I wanted to make money, I would just give talks for pharma companies. Um, I would, I would, I would not say anything about low carb. I would not say anything about keto. I would not talk about fasting. Keep everybody sick. Sell them lots of drugs and teach people how to give insulin. I'd make yeah, like right. five times the amount that I'm doing right now. It's like that's mm, ridiculous. Yeah. And it's a. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Getting back to the tea for a second, I, I heard that it's a myth that um, tea has more caffeine than coffee. In um, fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? Tea has tea less. Tea has caffeine. a lot less. I mean, uh, yeah. green tea also the caffeine is sort of bound to certain other compounds, so it tends to be sl- released a little bit more slowly. But caffeine mm. is actually part of why you get this increase in um, energy expenditure. So, mm. 
some people ask me that too. Are you going to come out with a decaffeinated version? I'm like, um, no, probably not. Because <laughs> <laughs> the caffeine's no part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's part of the natural thing, and this is the this is the other thing why I developed it. It's like. Again, I'm not trying to give you some kind of processed protein that's going to dull your appetite. It's a whole food. Sure, yeah. It's, it's yeah. basically cold brewed tea that's dehydrated and put in a little convenient pouch for you so that you can take anywhere else. You don't want to do it. You want to do it yourself. Go ahead. Do it. But it's mm-hmm. still in the end just tea. It's not anything that's processed. It's organic sure. tea that's that's been steeped and made into a little uh, pouch that's easy for you to take. But it's yeah. not this uh, whey pro, you know, concentrated, denatured whey protein. I'm like, <laughs> people don't drink that, guys. I mean, it's it's Doesn't still have any uh, ketones in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's one of these. It's still a whole food. It's still, um, uh, you know, something that has benefit for you. The caffeine, mm. if it's a problem for you, then you probably shouldn't drink it. Like, yes, you could do a decaffeinated version. It'd probably be mm. like. 50% as effective as the original because you still right. have the catechins. You just don't have the caffeine. But right. I really want people to actually have a bit of that caffeine because that's part of it. There's an interesting sure. study where they actually looked at the sort of caffeine independent of the green tea catechins and stuff. And hmm. what they find is that they're basically additive effects. So you get right. some effect from the caffeine, you get some effect from the catechins, and together they 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 do better for you than Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, well, Dr. Fung, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and thanks for coming back on Two Keto Dudes, and it's a pleasure working with you. Oh, thanks so much. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Jason. We'll see you later. Hey, you know, Richard, I actually got some of this tea that he was talking about. Oh, yeah. And I, and I really like it. I nice. really, really like it. It comes in these little packets, and you just open them up and dissolve them in water right? and, you know, give it a shake and it just tastes good. And it uh, has all the great qualities that you need when you're fasting, as Jason just mentioned. I look forward to trying some of it. I'll I'll probably try some at Keto Fest because uh, we can't uh, uh, import food into Australia. It has lots of custom regulations, which makes it difficult. So hopefully I'll try some at uh, Keto Fest and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. It's pretty good. Mm. All right. Uh, I'm a little hungry. Yeah, I'm a little bit puckish. <laughs> <laughs> puckish. All right, it's time for Recipes. Word of warning. If you're fasting, turn it off right now. Because I got something delicious. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? So, as I said, this is an update to my buffalo chicken meatball recipe. Mm hmm. And uh, I just wanted to try to find a way to make it more meatball-y, but also to elevate the flavor a bit, okay? Mm, Yeah. So, I made a mirepoix of finely chopped vegetables, celery, a small jalapeno, some onion, some red pepper, a couple cloves of garlic. And, you know, mirepoix is, if it was a traditional French mirepoix, it would also have carrots. Yeah. But this is more of a holy trinity, if you use peppers. Um, yeah, you're probably right. Holy Trinity right. from Louisiana and cooking. Yeah. Yeah. To, yeah. to be this technical. A, <laughs> to be technical. That's right. Mm. So chopped vegetables, very, very finely because you want them in the meatball, but you don't want them to stick out, right? Mm, yeah. So you're going to saute those in butter over medium and mm. medium high heat. And if you want to go all the way to caramelization, that's fine. You know, it, it, that makes it good, but they are going to cook in the meatballs. So you don't have to. If you want them a little more al dente, 
that will work really, really well for texture. Sure. So for the meatballs, we're going to take one pound of chicken. And for this, I use chicken thighs, not chicken breasts. Best part of the chicken is the thigh. Really It really, really is. Yeah. Yeah. So I take the skin off the thigh. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, that's also good for chicken skins, which was Richard's (laughs) recipe. Yeah. Uh, And then take the bone out and cut it up into cubes because you're going to put it in a food processor Mm. and, you know, turn it into a a pate, really. Mincemeat, yeah. Yeah, mincemeat. So to that, you're going to add three tablespoons of avocado oil, three teaspoons of konjac root powder. Now, you can get that online at Amazon or if you have an Asian grocery, you can get it there too. So this is uh, a kind of starch that we can't digest, right? That's right. It's also called glucomannan powder, right. shirataki. I mean, mm-hmm. shirataki, konjac, glucomannan, they're all sort of made from the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. 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 So you're going to add a teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of cracked black pepper, mm-hmm. uh, an egg, a clove or two of garlic, a half a cup of Romano cheese, grated Romano cheese. That gives it a nice tang and mm-hmm. also helps to bind it up. Yeah. And also some fresh sage and tarragon. I found that tarragon is a wonderful herb, fresh tarragon for any kind of, of meat and uh, in, in sauce too. Yeah. And sage, of course, goes really, really well with chicken. Yeah, if, you, if you're growing herbs, which I highly recommend everyone do because herbs are one of these plants that you can grow mm. in your garden. They take a lot of punishment. That's, that's yeah. basically the, the, their essence is that they can you know, live in a very dry, unwatered environment and thrive. Mm. If you're growing um, tarragon, there's two different kinds of tarragon. There's Russian tarragon and French tarragon. Get the French hmm. because the French has got a much more refined flavour. The Russian is sort of a, 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 a muddy sort of flavour. It's not as nice. So hmm. just a little bit, just a little tip. <laughs> I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're going to roll the, roll this into balls. Of course, you're going to process it and roll it into balls about, you know, inch and a half, however big you want, um, two inches something like that. And you're going to put them on a cookie sheet with parchment paper, mm-hmm. cook them in an oven at 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that is in Celsius. I think probably, you know, 232 just to pick a figure exactly out of the Exactly 232. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So <laughs> cook that in the 450 degree oven or 232 Celsius for 20 minutes or until crispy. You'll mm-hmm. see a little browning. You'll see some fond. Now, you're going to make a sauce for these. And typical buffalo chicken sauce has uh, a hot sauce and butter. Mm. Okay? And it's usually one-to-one. So, a half a cup of hot sauce to half a stick of butter, not, right. a, not a cup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I use Frank's Red Hot. Now, Frank's sauce also has a buffalo sauce. I don't know if you knew this, but Frank's has a buffalo sauce and just a regular hot sauce. Mm. I looked at the ingredients and the buffalo sauce includes some canola oil and some other things that I didn't yeah. like. Yeah. So I just got the Frank's Red Hot. Mm. You want a cup of that and you want a whole stick of butter and a cup of heavy cream. Ooh. And you, you want that heavy cream to sort of dilute it down, fatten it up a little bit, and you're going to put eight ounces of crumbled blue cheese in there. Mm. Yeah, that sounds and good. And the best blue cheese that I have found is either Roquefort, which mm-hmm. is wonderful, or yeah. you can get a creamy Gorgonzola. Oh, I do like a bit of Gorgonzola. <laughs> I like a bit of Gorgonzola, Gromit. <laughs> uh, 
And, and so when you cook this, you're going to cook it over low heat for longer. You don't want it to boil because mm-hmm. the, the fat will separate. Right. You just want to gently, gently warm it up together. It doesn't need to be cooked per se, but the butter needs to be melted. Yeah. And the blue cheese will melt a little bit, but there will still be these little pieces of it floating around in there, and that's what you want. Nice. For plating, I take a bowl and mm-hmm. I pour a little of the sauce in the bottom of the bowl. And okay, I pour a little more sauce, maybe a little <laughs> more sauce in the bottom of the bowl. Don't be right. stingy with that. No. And take three buffalo chicken meatballs and put them in there. And always serve three meatballs, not two, because Why? two is suspect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And then drizzle a little olive oil over the top of that. Which then, you know, it sort of sets on top of the sauce and it looks really nice. And then for some color, a little flat leaf parsley. And you can even take some of that uh, red pepper, fresh red pepper dice and put that on top as well. And that is the buffalo chicken meatballs that that will rule your world. Yeah. No, that sounds pretty uh, awesome. And you you cook this on, live on uh, on Facebook, uh, Twitch, uh, yep. uh, YouTube live. Awesome. Yep. Wonderful. Carl's Keto Kitchen. Nice. We're going to have a website for it very soon. Yeah. Yeah. I built but the website for, now, for Carl already. He's just got to start putting data right. into it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to hope to do that before Monday. So that'll oh, nice. be ready by the time uh, by the time this comes out. Carl'sKetoKitchen.com. All right. What do you got? So mine's really simple. I almost thought this is actually too simple for a recipe, uh, <laughs> but then I posted it on Facebook and everybody said, hey, what's the recipe? What's the recipe? And I thought it was kind of obvious. This is uh, what, what I'm making today is macadamia nut butter. And I thought, Ooh. oh, you know, that's pretty simple. But it turns out that uh, you can actually uh, elevate this. Elevate's the uh, word of the day. That's right. <laughs> you can elevate your macadamia nut butter by roasting it a little bit. So normally with a nut butter, what you want to do is you want to just uh, find a really good blender that can um, blend down to a very fine puree. You add a little bit of oil and uh, and you put it in a jar and that's your nut butter. But macadamias toast up really nice in a fry pan with just a little bit of oil on it. So you, mm. I start. I use a, I use a cold pressed macadamia oil, um, uh, but you know you can use avocado oil. You can use coconut oil. You, you're just sure. trying to to get a Maillard reaction on the outside of the macadamia nut. Right. And what that does is it it turns some of the sh- there's a there's a there's a, a little bit of sugar in the macadamia. It's not much. It's mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. like less than four percent. Mm-hmm. You're trying to caramelize that, and then you blend your macadamias, and you end up with a roasted sort of like a a more rounder mm. flavor. And yeah. so so I I fill a pan with uh, with macadamia nuts, and I keep shaking the pan and and rotating the the nuts it's got to be a hot pan it's it's, it's sure. you know it's uh so that so that as soon as the nuts hit the the hot surface they're going to start cooking and you just want to keep rotating it around until you mm. get that brown surface you know fairly well mm. covering around the outside of the nuts shake and it then, like an old jiffy pop carton that's exactly right yeah it's like you're cooking yeah. popcorn and then you're just going to uh put that into a blender now i'm going to add a little bit of oil first i blend it first and 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 what will happen is it'll come down to a paste and then I'll mm. add a little bit of oil to loosen the paste. And I want mm. to get it to be very similar to peanut butter 
you know. So right. I'm actually, I actually put it in an old peanut butter jar and I put the picture on Facebook <laughs> and every, everybody's like, what's the recipe? What's the recipe? That looks awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, it is awesome. <laughs> it's not a complicated <laughs> recipe. But anyway, yeah. so, so, but the trick is to, to, to roast them, roast the nuts before you use it. Now, how mm. would you use this? Because, you know, you can't eat bread. Right. So, um, so, I mean, you could use, uh, Julie bread, you get that at bread.tokido.com. Sure. That's and, right. We uh, call it Julie bread because yeah. Julie is the, the Julie person from Fox Hill it. Kitchens. Yeah, and so yeah. so you know you get one of her bagels and uh, toast up a bagel and put a bit on. But you oh, know yeah. it's, it's, that's a lot of carbs for you know just for a treat. What I would suggest doing it. Uh, I mean, the first way to eat it is with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> that's the obvious way. Um, what I've what I've done is I've um, uh, on a long bike ride, I put some into the bottom of a of a of a Ziploc bag, and mm. I'll just bite the end off the bag and I'll squeeze it in my mouth. So sort of it, on right. the second hour of my bike ride, when I'm starting to feel like I'm I need a little bit of energy, that's a really mm. quick way to get energy into me. Um, nice. And yeah, and it, it's just like a goo. It's like a starchy goo, except, you know, I'm, I'm, it's all no fat. Starch. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and then the other way to eat it is you can smear it over, uh, say, fish, for example. You could smear it a little bit over, yeah, when you're baking fish in the oven. And you don't huh. want it to dry out, so you smear a little bit of this over the top of it. And what'll happen wow. is it'll it'll dry it'll dry the the macadamia nuts. The fish underneath will remain moist, and fish wow. with macadamia is really good. If you've ever had I a macadamia crusted fish, it's delicious. So yeah, wow. so so on a, on a white fish or, or something that that's a little bit delicate, and you don't want it to dry out too much. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, smear a little bit of macadamia nut or nut butter on top of it. Well done, sir. That's my recipe. <laughs> And what a great show. Thanks to Jason Fung for sharing his thoughts on diabetes and the Diabetes Code. It's a great book. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at tuketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, and Instagram at Two Keto Dudes. Make sure to use the hashtag Two Keto Dudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.twoketo.com. And if useful swag is your fancy, like t-shirts and coffee mugs and all that other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.twoketo.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.twoketo.com. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, including Two Keto Dudes, Keto Woman with Daisy Brackenhall, the Obesity Code podcast with Jason Fung and Megan Ramos, and Keto Families and Keto Kids, think about making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos like Carl's Keto Kitchen on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. All right, Richard, keep calm, keto on, and fast when you can. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl, and Keto Fest at least once a year. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time on, on Two, Two Keto, keto Dudes. Dudes.